Welcome to Rockstar Violinist, electric violin shops podcast that brings you the most innovative and talented string players in the world. I am Matt Bell. This episode is a special one for me. One of the perks of my job is that I get to meet and become friends with players who I've watched and admired for years. Alex Depew is one of those people. I remember watching him on the Steve Vai tour and being blown away. In the last few years, we've had a chance to get to know each other and hang out some. Every time I see Alex play, I'm impressed a little more. He is one of the rare players in the world who can combine an incredible amount of control and finesse with raw and explosive power. Right now, we're listening to his tune, Cliffs of Sober, from his 2011 album called Stages. Our sponsor for this episode is Glasser Violins. You're all familiar with Glasser Bows. They've been a trusted name in bows for years. Now they have some outstanding carbon fiber acoustic electric violins. Alex plays one. I play one. You'll get to hear some Glasser Violins later in this episode. In fact, if you check out Alex's latest video that we talk about in the interview, you'll see a -a one-of-a-kind light-up violin that Glasser made for Alex to use in his performance at the Olympics in Rio in 2016. Alex and I did not get a chance to sit down for an interview when we were both in Anaheim a few weeks ago. He's in really high demand as a performer. So we had a Skype conversation this week. When he plays his violin in the interview, he's clipping their audio a little bit, but it's not terribly distracting, and the playing is always is fantastic. So let's get on to my chat with Alex Depew, rock star violinist. lot of contests back in the day. I did, yeah. I'm still kind of, well, I haven't done them in a while, but yeah. So, uh, you grew up in Ohio, right? That's right. Bowling Green, Ohio, just south of Toledo. Yeah, my parents are uh, in Temperance, Michigan, just across from uh, just across from Toledo. I know it well. So, uh, I played in was a polka band I worked with for three and a half years. And the guy who ran that band lived in Temperance. Oh, okay. So he didn't, did he know what he had or not? That's a good question. It seems as though they all did, you know. So we're talking about the Polka Band. We're talking about several other groups throughout Michigan. There, uh, Detroit, Flint, uh, lots of different artists, solo artists throughout those years. We're talking um, 90s. Let's see, I graduated in 1990, so 94-ish is when Garth Brooks really made his big splash. Yep. And uh, chicks were dirty dancing in front of the stage to country music, even oh. in the city of Detroit. Where Detroit's country a country music, town, man. Well, it, it, it wasn't before then, you know? It was uh, all about Motown. Right. There's been so much nasty talent come out of Detroit. Yeah, so Garth Brooks hit the airwaves and everybody lost their ever-loving minds, you know? And why shouldn't they? Because Garth Brooks is one of two people we can think of in the year 2018 who can say, 
directly into the camera lens that they've sold more records than the Beatles. Yeah, so who who's the other one? Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. Michael Jackson so, can't say it into the camera today, though. No. Yeah, that's a sad thing, but, you know. Garth can. Yep. And, and I mean, what a hell of a thing to be able to say. For sure. Yes, yeah, I've sold more records than the Beatles. And I saw him... Um, I saw him here in Raleigh about a year ago, and he's not a young dude, and he still puts on a great show. I believe it. He's yeah, running around that stage like a nut. Always been known for that, and his fiddle player is a buddy of mine. Jimmy Mattingly? Contest fiddler, yeah. He was one of the first guys that, because I was, I was not a country dude, I was from Detroit, you know, and I, I didn't care about country. And the first time I really, that any country fiddler really spoke to me was him. Interesting. I listened, wow. Listen to his stuff and went, man, this dude, he got his, some stuff, man. Garth, his stuff with Garth? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this. I mean, that's just over the top. Right. You know? And this. That's from Garth's first hit. Yep. Too young to feel this damn old. And what a quintessential fiddle line that is. No doubt. Just a D major scale. That's like, wow. Yeah, it was, uh, that's, uh. I mean, sort of when you go back to the Beatles and all that, too, it, it seems like a lot of times simplicity is just the key, right? I, I would say so. So even in the latest production you see from yours truly with Rhonda Vincent, we have the one reprise which has the Vinyowski in it, okay, mm -hmm. admittedly. And then after that is a good 12 bars of solo in fifths, which isn't so technically challenging, and there's a reason for that. Like, I didn't want this thing to be so complicated that fiddle players aren't going to be able to, to pick it up and play it if they work a little bit, you know? Yeah, it was good. Let's, let's talk about that video, by the way. Um, that just came out. So for our listeners who are listening to this podcast, you guys can find that video on YouTube. You can find it on Alex's Facebook page. It's, it's in a lot of places. Um, but the playing on that is is unreal. It's it's really good. All of the playing. Everybody in the band was just crushing it. Oh, thank you very much for that. Yeah, there was a, one guy I certainly couldn't live without for that production, and that's John Carroll on the guitar. He's nasty. Oh, wait, he is. You want to hear my John Carroll story? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was in 99 when my phone rang, and it was Chris Cagle on the other line, and... He let it be known that the album was on the way to my address, and if I didn't like the music, don't bother. All right? But I got the album, and I did like the music, and I realized uh, through a couple different sources who was responsible for it, and the next thing you know, I'm in Nashville, and the audition goes on without a hitch, and uh, the next thing that happens is I'm, I've got the gig. And it's my first national gig, and I'm young, and I'm ready, man. Like, I was ready. And uh, I didn't really understand, though, 
to what level we had gone since leaving Michigan, the little studio up in Michigan, right around where Temperance is, actually. Uh, anyway, uh, the first thing that happened was the video for My Love Goes On and On, which was our first hit, like, went to the top five, uh, which was pretty good for an, an emerging artist. Yeah, I remember that. So the first thing that happened is I shook Chris's hand and we began shooting the video. Same day, okay? Um, we hadn't even done our first show yet. So it wasn't until we got to the first show that I realized really kind of what was going on, like what level this national act had in store. And it was because we ended up on the stage and there's 15, 20,000 screaming fans. And I look to my left, there's Chris Cagle, and just past Chris Cagle is this guy dressed in leather, spandex, like skin tight leather. He looked like Batman with a guitar. <laughs> and he looked at me with 20,000 fans screaming bloody murder and he made this face like, <sighs> and dude, like, my, I got the, the quivers, I got the shivers, and I got every little morsel of the kind of feeling that just overload of testosterone, man. And that's what went on for the next six years with that band, was just 100% ass-whipping testosterone level shit. That's a really cool. Yeah, that 90s country, man, when you go back and listen to that now, I mean, I don't, we knew that it was good at the time, but, you know, when we hear, when I listen to that stuff now, I, I forget how good some of those players were. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. So, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about this video with Ron and Vincent and how all that got put together and whose idea was it and, and how'd the shoot go? And... Sure. You know, it began with the news of uh, Merle's death. I had, as a child, performed with Marty Haggard. Okay. And that's Merle's son. And when you listen to Marty sing, it's like listening to the real thing. I mean, that's how similar their two voices are. It's it's almost scary. Uh, but I was introduced to all of Mer Merle's hits at that time. I was nine years old. So, like, Silver Wings is this... absolutely ethereal gorgeous fiddling and then his voice came in so it's like to add more injury to the wound it, uh, anyway uh, that mama tried um, a lot of the hits that we know and love including working man blues were on that set list when I was nine years old and it stuck with me 
It stuck with me to the point of becoming a professional musician, ultimately, ending up in a country band that was playing covers. And on anybody's set list, I'm sure you can attest to this, if you're in the business of being a country cover band, Working Man Blues is on the set. Like, it's in your set. Yeah, I've played it more than once. So I just couldn't think of a better option upon Merle's passing than to record that with a different kind of attitude. And that's what we have. We've got a different arrangement. We've got the same tonality originally presented from Merle, but with a different groove, for sure, Mm -hmm. and with a different way of interpreting that tonality. You'd have to listen to it closely to really identify what I'm saying, but um, it's the way that that melody will fit not only over the one chord, but how it also might fit throughout the sequence of, well, in this case, one flat seven five. And it works. It does work. So it was Merle's passing that inspired me to take action, and then that was the same year that my little brother... Uh, Zachary, who is the concertmaster of the Indianapolis Symphony, pissed me off to the point of no end over (laughs) Christmas. And I got back to the house, and I could barely contain my rage. I went upstairs and recorded the drum part. Okay. So uh, you can hear, if you listen faintly in the background, it's right around at at the end where we come back to the D chord. Uh, You can hear beat two, uh, the kick drum And the kick hits the head, and you can hear it pop, and then you can hear me swear into the overhead mics (laughs) as the track is going. It's right in time, thank God, but you can hear a vocal there that isn't supposed to be there. That's awesome. So, um, Inside information. On top of that came the acoustic guitars, came, you know, some scratch tracks, which ended up being replaced, and then finally... uh, put to the drums, uh, and then I had Rhonda, no, I had uh, John Carroll do the guitars first, so that that might further inspire Rhonda's singing of it, actually, and then came the icing on the cake, so to speak, and it was Rhonda's vocals. She did eight passes, so I had a lot of options to choose from as I went through and dissected exactly what content we were going to end up with. There's one note in there that you're you're way up on on the fingerboard and she just opens her mouth and this screech comes out and I went, oh man, she got up. <laughs> so yeah, and, and she that's what was on the one of the takes, one of the eight takes was that scream and you know that was part of her directions like uh, suggestions. I gave her a list of suggestions because I couldn't be there in Nashville. To, okay. to oversee or produce that particular session. But she did follow the suggestions. And uh, it was funny because when we met for the video shoot, she came up to me with the big eyes and she was like, I didn't know that anybody could scream on a record. <laughs> they don't let them do that in Nashville. <laughs> I'm like, well, you certainly did do us proud because, you know, and I would say even further is that she's a, a closet Janice Joplin fan. Okay. You can hear it. Yeah, you can hear, you can that. hear it on that track. Yeah, you can definitely hear it on that track. So, so uh, 
All the, the drums and stuff that we're hearing on the tape, that's you. Yeah, it was recorded here at this studio. Um, mind you, the drum pass happened two years ago. It's been two years in construction to what we now know is the final result, you know. But, uh, yes, shortly after my little brother ticked me off, went up, did the drums, and everything else is also was also recorded here by yours truly, aside from John's guitar, you know, obviously. And, I mean, I, I challenge you to find any guitar player in the world who can simulate those parts for the sake of a music video. Yeah. You're out of luck. Yeah, you gotta have you gotta have the real deal, and you gotta have John Carroll, and you have to fly him in and make sure he's a hundred percent comfortable. Uh, lucky for me, he's also a dear friend, so it all worked out beautifully. So y'all shot that in Nashville, then? We did, yeah, the American Legion Hall there on Gallatin. Um, it's often used for the, this kind of purpose because of that backdrop. Right. It's the, it's the American flag. Sure. It's really cool Christmas I, light. I remember seeing that and thinking, I'm pretty sure I've played in places just like that. <laughs> yeah, that makes perfect sense. And then, you know, my favorite video shoot with Cagle was also uh, an American flag as our backdrop. I believe it's still considered one of the largest constructs of an American flag ever designed for the purpose of a video shoot. Uh, the name of that video is uh, uh, Country by the Grace of God. Chris Cagle, Country by the Grace of God. Uh, fabulous production there. When the lights, when the sun goes down and the lights come off, the backdrop is, is then lit about... Uh, two-thirds of the way through the video, and then it's game on. It's a really exciting video. Yeah, nice. It's a big job just getting by with nine kids and a wife.
so backing up, you you started playing you started playing the violin real young. You come from a super musical family. I do. Three brothers who all play the violin professionally. Uh, I'm one of four, so there's four total, and together we also have a, a band called Depew Brothers Band, uh, which makes sense. Uh, but that is comprised of an entire bluegrass band, which is backing the sound of what are more or less symphonic violinists, okay? Uh, symphonic violinists with the ability to improvise. So that's what may or may not set us apart from other symphonic violinist acts that you may prefer to, okay? Um, add to it a bluegrass band, and then we have what my brother coined grassical music. Mm. And grassical music, like he registered that word through the Library of Congress, and we own it. And it's basically exactly what it seems to be. It's the combination, it's the fusion of classical meets bluegrass with a kind of uh, just a, a symphonic twist to it that I don't believe has ever existed prior to that. Yeah, we're going to listen to one of those tunes now. <clears throat> we're going to fly one of these tunes in. Um, why don't you just pick one of the tunes that you guys do and, and give us a little uh, give us a little background on that and then we'll listen to it. Well, the recording we have of the Orange Blossom special is, is pretty damn good. So I'll go through some of the instruments for you. On guitar for the albums, we have uh, Mark Cosgrove as our flat picker. Now, he was 1995 national flat picking champion, uh, Winfield, Kansas, which is where all of the national championships should be. Uh and then on the banjo, we have Bela Flex teacher, who is Tony Trishka, a wonderful gentleman, and he's just playing like there's no tomorrow. So, you know, Orange Blossom Special is perhaps the most requested, aside from The Devil Went Down to Georgia, a fiddle tune known to mankind. So usually it's one of those ones that people decide, you know what, we're not going to play that, no matter how badly you want to hear it. Yeah. We're just not doing it anymore. But... We have always loved that tune, and it evolved very organically. I mean, that's the best description I can give it, because you'll hear in there where there's a breakdown, and we have this figure. I would challenge you or anybody else to figure out what that meter is. Hmm? I'm, I'm thinking right now. Is that 7-8? I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't believe anybody named Depew. I think Wally did figure it out because he has a PhD and something to prove. Yeah. But he did figure it, and it was he who came up with it ultimately, you know, initially, he was the first Depew brother who said, hey, you know, how about this right here? So it makes sense that it's him who figures it out in his adulthood, what meter it's in. Yeah, but you guys just sort of all could just feel it and just played it. Yeah. Hey, you know, because he's the oldest brother, and it's like, wow, so that's how that goes. 
you know, there's no questioning it. It's like, wow, all right, we can hang in there with you. Sure. And so we do, and it's the damnedest thing you'll ever hear. <laughs> awesome. So you guys, that sort of, did it evolve on the road or did it evolve in the studio or, or where did this song sort of turn into what it is? As kids, you have to remember we're talking like 9, 11, and then the youngest one at that point would have been 5 coming up to join us. And then soon after that would be Zachary as each kid would age into the band, so to speak. Uh, they would have to adapt to those parts. So when you say on the road, it's difficult when you're thinking back to we're talking like early 80s and trying to decipher, were, were we on the road? I mean, is going, is going to the tri-state area fiddle contests and what count, you know, the, the county fairs, is that on the road? I don't know. It's on the road uh, for a nine-year-old, for sure. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and it felt like it was on the road. We would camp. Okay. So it was pretty fun at the same time, um, but yeah. Anytime, and, and even during the, the formal season, you know, during school semesters, uh, we would have just as many performances. So we were performing all the time. We were on the road all the time, so to speak. Yeah. So where you guys had started doing this, uh, you started, I guess, doing like contest fiddling and then got into classical on the side, or were these things happening simultaneously, or how'd that work? It's vice versa. It began with formal study at age five for each uh, DePew brother, okay? And it was not encouraged that we spend our summers pursuing improvisational music or fiddle contests or hillbilly, you know, festivals or anything like that. Uh, it was actually frowned upon. So we would go sneaking around behind our teachers' backs each summer and do it anyway. <laughs> And I'm very happy that my dad had the gumption to follow through with that because we wouldn't have the experience or the know-how, you know, the savvy to do what it is we're doing in our adult years. Sure. So your dad is a musician too? He's a concert pianist. Okay. He's also a retired professor of music theory and composition. Now you can imagine what that might be to work for. Yeah, right? So yeah, dinner conversations are great. <laughs> so then you guys started doing all that. And so who was was maybe the first one to try to break out and go more on the rock side like you did? Your brothers are all still in classical? Yeah, uh, it was for sure me. I was the black sheep of the family from day one. And, I, I, you know, if you look back at some of the scientific studies that have been done, like through psychology and psychiatry and so forth, it seems to, to be the general consensus that your second born is blessed with that uh, black sheep mentality. So I don't mind being that guy because it's brought all kinds of different experiences into my life. And uh, I would even go as far as to say that uh, they are the kinds of experiences that my brothers could use to have in their own arsenal of experiences. Because the way you and I went through the, the process of doing what it is we do entails a lot more than book study. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. 
there's literally blood, sweat, and tears involved with what we do. And that's not to say that that isn't the same with classical, the pursuit of classical study, all right? I'm sure the same is true. But to deal with it on the real life or death scenario that you and I have experienced, mm-hmm. is it, that's a different story. You know, it's out of necessity breeds creativity or something of that nature. That's how the quote goes. Sure. It's like, wow, that's true, you know. Well, on that, you, uh, on that line, you've done a lot of busking in your day, right? That's right. So, yeah, talk about how that, how that came about and some of the things that you learned there um, versus maybe what people would learn in a conservatory. That's a great topic of discussion, you know, at the risk of boring anybody. But uh, the fact of the matter is, is, if you're alone and you have to make things work and you're playing literally to stay alive, <laughs> that just might have an effect on what you play. Like, it might have an effect on the way you play it, too. So if and when you sink into anything for real on the street as a busker, and your life depends on it, you're going to come up with all kinds of different innovative ways to maintain and hold an audience, to hold their attention, so that when you're finished, you might make that dollar that they're holding. Right. Uh, As the result of that experience, we ended up with... uh, some arrangements which were, again, I want to use the word organic because uh, they evolved through experience. I got sick of just hearing the the uh, melodic content of the violin. Okay, so uh, I don't know what to give you. Uh, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Not so exciting, you know. But as soon as you need to hear more and your desire is to hear a larger band or a quartet or even drums and bass and percussion, the next thing you have, maybe step two. that much more sure add to that a little bit of percussion a little bit of bass and uh... I'm only using this as an example you know twinkle twinkle star with a bit of a groove and then you've got what you you had always hoped for, a full band. Right. So when you were doing the busking, what age was that? Uh, <laughs> those years were awfully blurry, Matt. <laughs> I've got a few of those myself. Uh, I wish I could tell you. It, I can't imagine uh, many years before I was 40 when I wasn't doing that on some level. So age... 19 through 40. Like, I'm always doing that on some level. And we all are, to some extent. Even the NAM show. Like, when is the last time I bust? Well, it was just last week at the NAM show. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) And what are we busking for there? 
pretty much video footage. Right. So. Yeah, and you know, because you got it in today's world of social media, that's how you got to stay current and stay relevant and stay on people's radar, right? This is some cell phone video of Alex playing at NAM in Anaheim, California in January 2018. He's on a Glasser carbon fiber acoustic electric violin that he literally picked off the wall to display about 30 seconds before the filming started. He plugged it into an amp that was sitting there and flipped it on without even looking at the settings. school when you finished school finished high school and all that where did you go from there bowling green state university okay so uh you know in those days we didn't have much of a choice uh as to where we were going to go to school now i say we i'm talking about my older brother and me uh mom died in 86 and that left it up to my father to make a lot of decisions all on his own and one of those was that uh, Wally and I would not have any choice in the matter and that we were destined to go to the school where he taught, which was Bowling Green State University in Ohio. That's a good school. Uh, it is a good school. It's a, even better than that. I would say it's a great school, and it's a great school for music. And it was a wonderful school at that time, for sure. But uh, it doesn't carry the weight that Juilliard or... Curtis Institute does. Sure. Does. And uh, that's one thing I'm very thankful for is that my younger two brothers were afforded that opportunity to audition wherever they wanted. And as the result, they're in uh, great positions, you know, with American orchestras. So your brothers did go to Juilliard? Uh, Curtis Institute okay. is where they both went. And Zachary went to Cleveland for, uh, I believe, one year. Okay. Yeah, and it's. I feel like Juilliard now, and then Berkeley is where a lot of people are trying to go, and then of course Musicians Institute and all those places. North Texas is another one. Yeah, North Texas is another one. You know. So, uh, as speaking of Berkeley, I have a student who has been with me since the Mark O'Connor camp. So that was 2014. And I've been working with her closely since then, and she was just accepted into Berkeley as a violin student. Oh, fantastic. So, 
That's something to celebrate. Her name is Kate Byrne, B-Y-R-N-E. Oh, good. And when they get a load of what she's able to do on the fiddle, I think the game's about to change yet again. Good. And I love seeing that. These kids coming up that are taking the things that um, your generation, my generation, Mark Wood's generation has has done, and they're sort of taking that and going, yeah, we're going to go to the next level with this. Amen. That's as it should be. So when you took the Steve Vai gig, that was sort of a departure for you then because you'd been doing more country and bluegrass and, and fiddle contest stuff, or was, was that sort of a, were you doing a lot of rock stuff too? Well, let's just be clear. I was an avid rock and roll fan for most of my life. It started at age uh, 12, 13-ish, when I was like, wow, what's this groove thing all about? Yeah. <laughs> and the next thing you know, uh, I was spinning Pink Floyd records and just having all kinds of fun. Well, um, <clears throat> the first thing that happened, as far as the technique goes on the violin, is simply opening your ears to accept the fact that improvisation is possible. Uh, I did that through listening to Mark O'Connor very closely. So he was my first rock star, if you will, with the instrument. As, as far as the fiddle goes, he was my guy. Uh, I did take what he had to offer through those recordings and elaborated upon it, just like we discussed with Kate Byrne. And uh, what I ended up with in competition did really well. It really did well, and I started winning anything and everything that moves. Uh, until they figured out that it was me. So as soon as they figured out that it was me, uh, that was the end of the first place trophies. And uh, it's a, it's, you know, I dare say it, but it's a very politically minded affair, those fiddle contests. That's why I don't really encourage my students to take them very seriously. You know, if you win, great. Consider it good luck because it really was. In my opinion, it doesn't really so much matter how good you are. It just really depends on who your five judges are going to be. So there's a thing that they're looking for, and things outside that box are, are not appreciated? That's right. Well, step one and rule number one for any serious fiddle com competition uh, competitor, okay, is don't do anything the judges can't do. That's step one, and I say that with the uh, this most serious face I can muster. Like, it's really a no-no, and I, I'm not sure if I were in the judge's seat and I heard somebody come to the table, and mind you, you can only hear them these days. We, we, we can't see the competitors on stage. Okay, so it's audio only. That's right, and if I were to hear somebody come through my headphones doing stuff that I can't do, I mean, that would inspire me. Yeah, it right? Wouldn't, it wouldn't intimidate me, and I wouldn't be like, wow, I'm going to mark that person down because I'm humiliated right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to pin them in a corner and, and get them to show me what they did. I just can't. I can't understand that mentality either. So that's why I no longer compete. So, um... Yeah, tell us about, I guess, after after you graduated uh, Bowling Green with a music degree, right? 
Well, I went to the school and I decided uh, after three semesters that this was not going to work out. I had my dad for the eight o'clock class. Oh. And also had a six night gig in the city of Detroit, which is a good two and a half hour drive. That's a haul from Bowling Green. So it was a six night gig, nine to one a.m. No. And, and then the drive back and then your father looking down at you in front of the whole class to make an example out of you to show that he wasn't going to play any favorites. And my dad is known, at least uh, infamous, at BGSU as being one of the toughest professors anybody has ever had. So, I don't know. I kind of got carried away in the other side of life, and the dirty dancing to Garth Brooks was much more appealing to me. Sure, well, you know, it's hard to put my mind around that as a 19-year-old kid, right? So what was this gig you had in Detroit? Was was a uh, was a country cover band thing? It was. Yeah, the name of the band was Most Wanted, and we had a wonderful time. We had a great go at it. We thought that the industry was going to come to Detroit and discover us. And if you're listening to Matt's podcast and that is your mentality right now, you need to check yourself. You need to take a little break and realize that the industry is not going to come to you. You must go to where the action is. That's not going to be, most likely, Detroit, Michigan. That's going to be Nashville, Tennessee, Los Angeles, California, perhaps New York City. Branson is a new hot spot for music. Yeah. Uh, Austin, Texas is a great place to go. Um, But it isn't going to come to you, and no, you are not going to become discovered doesn't matter how good you are. And if you're really good and you're still sitting there listening to us, move your ass. You move your ass. There's some wisdom bombs dropped right there for you. (laughs) It's just through experience. This is the kind of stuff you really just can't buy. Nobody is going to offer it to you either. Like these are kind of the secrets nobody talks about. Right. But then you know the thing is when you do go to Nashville, you better uh, you better strap that fiddle on tight because there's some serious cats in Nashville. Yeah, I was just down there to do the video shoot with Rhonda, and it, I, I was blown away on Second Avenue watching these fiddlers with big biceps and tattoos just swinging as groovy and silky smooth as anything I'd ever heard. You yeah. Know? Scary good. And those are the cats who are really happy right now to be making 30 bucks a night. Yep. Just mind-boggling. Yeah, Nashville's a place where you can go and the best musician you'll ever meet will bring your dinner to you on on a plate because they need the money. It's the damnedest thing. Same with the singers, you know. I mean, there are some fabulous talents down there just waiting to be discovered. And maybe they will get discovered. You know why? Because they're in the right city and they're in there swinging hard, banging it out. They know what they've got. Yep. Yeah, I think maybe people, you know, social media goes a long way, right? I mean, there's a lot of YouTube stars out there and people, Justin Bieber became big on YouTube and uh, Lindsey Sterling became big on YouTube and there's a lot of stars that are sort of blown up on YouTube. But, you know, those, those guys went... To LA too. They're throwing out YouTube videos and then they went to LA. 
Yes. I'm that guy, as a matter of fact. I went to L.A. and I did the uh, audition with Steve Vai. And mind you, uh, just before my audition was a, another gentleman, a, a dear friend of mine named Christian Howes. Oh, yeah. Also from Ohio. Yeah, so we interviewed he, him for the podcast, too. Oh, good. Well, he and I kind of grew up together, watching each other's family, you know, do this and do that. And yeah. uh, every now and again, we'd meet up and be at the same a function at the same time, well, it happened again later on in life when he and I both showed up for the Steve Vai audition, and he got to go first and set the bar, right? Yeah, Christian can play. Oh my god, I mean, I listened on the other side of the door intently with my ear pressed up against the door because <laughs> I wanted to know what was what I was up against, you know, and he was just killing it reactive everything and just sweeping away and trading links with Vi and I was so humbled by the time that audition was over I looked at Vi when I walked in I said how'd you like that last guy <laughs> and he looked at me and he says I liked him a lot straight face oh great well I was like alright well let's just get this over with. yeah I guess I'd better serve it up Here's some live audio from the Steve Vai Where the Wild Things Are tour. This is Alex and Steve Vai trading licks and just kind of messing around with each other. So he ended up taking two people out on that tour, right? It was you and Anne-Marie Calhoun, right? Yes. Anne-Marie came uh, as the result of some finagling, I believe, uh, that his management 
put together along with a vision that Steve had initially of surrounding himself with strings or violins. Right. Will violins. And one violin was to take the place of the devil, which would have been mine, uh, my part, role. And then one would take the place of the angel, which she did just elegantly. I mean, she was perfect for the role. Her playing is so pretty. Absolutely delightful to work with. So where's she now? Uh, I haven't checked in with her in some time. Uh, Enough time that I really can't tell you. Uh, It reminds me that I should send her a message or call her and just say hello. She calls me Peppy. Peppy. (laughs) Peppy Le Pew. There you go. There you go. Peppy Le Pew. So, yeah, give us some some scoop on that tour and tell us... uh, some stories about the road and some of the stuff that you guys wrote and arranged and came up with? Well, Jeremy Colson and I made it a point to have our picture taken underneath every no smoking sign we could find smoking like chimneys. So there's that. Yeah. So where were, where were some of the places you guys got to play? Some of the cool venues? Um, well, the coolest venues of course were the outdoor affairs where, I woke up one morning and saw on the tour sheet that we were, we were expecting 50,000 people in the audience for that particular show. And that's when you kind of brush the hair out of your face, having just woken up, and it's like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is going to be a great day. Uh, so on the show that night was uh, Vi, and then Toto, and then Aerosmith. Oh, wow. And that was in Germany somewhere. I wish I could tell you where. Uh, outdoor festival, and it was an amazing experience. You know, I got to stay on deck when Aerosmith went on and was given a pair of headphones from a road guy that I had known from the Kegel days. Funny how that works. Right. There's not that many of those guys. You sort of you bump into each other. Exactly. And I had a, a phone mix of exactly what Steven Tyler was listening to during that show. Uh, I can tell you some fun trivia is, uh, like many artists, Steven has a bitch microphone next to the drum riser. Okay. This is, this is the microphone that only staff can hear. The right. whole band can hear it. The entire sound crew can hear it. Your lighting crew. Everybody who you employ as Steven Tyler can hear your bitch microphone. Well, the only people who can't hear it are the 60,000 people who are in front of you. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, let's just absorb that concept to begin with. We've used them. We've used them because we're all in-ears in my band. In order for us to hear each other, you got to have, sometimes you got to have a stage mic to be able to communicate. Oh, that's a good point. You know, it's a fine practice. Uh, but Wow. You know, to see it being employed by Steven Tyler and being on the on the receiving end of it is quite the eye opener. Yeah. So what's he what's he saying in there? Well, at the risk of offending, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just uh, directions and even I think he was in a pretty good mood that night because he was also commenting as to like that he couldn't seem to motivate the sixty thousand people in front of him who were singing every word right along with him. But he was like, you know, he said something to the effect of, 
Do we even have an audience tonight? That's you funny. Know, something like that. That's the crazy awesome. experience. Toto, you know, is unbelievable live. And this guy is, you know, is what retirement age. Sure. And he's still sailing A flats out there above the heads of 60,000 people. Tenor range A flats that are just clear as a bell for Africa uh, or, you know, hold the line or some of those hits that you know and love from Toto. They sound Great like songs. the record. Yeah, they had great songs. Agreed. Uh, Rosanna. Oh, good. yeah. Uh, and Jeff Picaro on the original drums. You know, he's no longer with us, but they've uh, covered themselves quite well. So Steve Lukather and Steve Vai go way back. And when the two of them met up for that show, well, we all decided that it would be a fine night to go on out into the city and enjoy what that city had to offer as far as entertainment or whatnot. And what we walked in on was a Toto cover band. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. So Steve Vai, Steve Lukather, and me in the middle walk into this club, and I, sw I swear it was like a scene out of a movie. The whole bar stopped. The band stopped playing, dwindled down like a record stop. And everybody was in silent awe as they looked up in the balcony and saw the three of us with their jaws open. That's awesome. That's, you could hear a pin drop. And then we were like, you know, that. well, I, I just happened to be tagging along, okay? But it was like, you know, as soon as they gave the thumbs up, everything went back to normal, and the band started back up again, and people started, you know... It was really just a scene out of a movie. That's surreal. Uh, that was the night we had to carry Steve Lukather out. <laughs> and, uh, well, I'll tell you the rest of that story someday when you're old enough to understand. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so on the, uh, on the Vi tour, you were on that tour for a couple of years, right? Well, it began in 2007 and went through 2009. So seven was the uh, European tour. Uh, eight was the U.S.-Canada portion. And then nine was the South American tour. And then 10 was the release of the DVD. And it wasn't even until 2011 when he finally got the nomination for the Grammy for that DVD okay. and the subsequent gold record from the RIAA in America and also a platinum record issued to all members uh, from Canada. Yeah, that's awesome. It really was, you know. Uh, I'm just, I can't even believe it happened sometimes. It's like a dream sequence, those three years, four years. So uh, give us some scoop on some of the writing process for that. Was Did he bring in already finished stuff, or were you guys uh, involved in the writing and arranging process? A little bit of both. Actually, a lot a bit of both. Uh, but most of the stuff was already penned and ready to go, ready to execute by Mr. Vi. And we're talking about song one, which was... Uh, the, the Grammy-nominated uh, Now We Run, okay? And that was, just for the violin part, a booklet about a 
quarter inch, half inch thick. Like the pages when taped together in an accordion kind of uh, figuration was a lot of material, okay? And complex meter changes, complex harmonies, com complex everything, okay? Mm -hmm. We spent a good week banging that out together as a band to the point of exhaustion. Like we're talking 12 hours, 16 hour days, uh, full blown, full volume, because Jeremy is on the drums and he's not gonna be playing any quieter. <laughs> and we've all got, you know, our, our in-ears and uh, literally sweating in LA heat. And uh, we did get it in a, a really good shape. You know, um, so Anne Marie was absent for the first week of rehearsals, so she missed that. And by the time she arrived from her gig with Jethro Tull, uh, I had already been sweating it out for a week alone, trying to cover both parts. And uh, when she arrived, I shook her hand and we said hello and whatnot. And I said, "Here's song one," and in front of the whole band in the rehearsal. I flung it across the room so it would open up <laughs> and it made it all the way to the wall and Holy it hit cow. the wall it hit the wall and she was like she her jaw dropped to the floor she couldn't believe it this is song one and it's 20 something pages long and then she knew what she was in for yeah because I would guess the Jethro gig is more of a sort of improvisational I would guess it's less uh, rope right yeah, like your free-for-all, groovy jam kind of thing, you know? Yeah, she's like, I'm on, I'm on a different tour now. That's right. So the next day to rehearsal, on the way to rehearsal, she was very professional. You know, that we're talking about a young lady who had never uttered the word damn it in her entire life. That's how pure and pristine this angel was for the vibe. Okay. And on the way in, I, I felt for her because uh, she was holding it together just fine. But on the way in, the, the door to the rehearsal that second day, she made it as far as the plant in the foyer where she had to quickly puke. <laughs> <laughs> and let that vomit fly and then brush herself off like nothing happened and continued with the day. Yeah, I'm sure that's a high-pressure gig. You know, you, you realize that you're standing among greatness. So, there is that, you know, and then there is the face that Steve gives you at the end of the day as he hands you next week's, uh, I'm sorry, not next week, but the next day material. Okay, the material. here's the material we're going to cover tomorrow. You're just drenched in your own sweat, having worked 12 hours with the guy, and he's handing you tomorrow's material. And he looks at you with that same face that we see in Crossroads when he can't play that last lick. Yeah. Well, that face? Yep. And he looks at you like that and he says, so you'll have this by tomorrow, right? <laughs> I'm going to give it the old college try. And so you go home drenched in your own sweat and what do you do? You practice. Yep. You practice as long as it takes to get that guy to not have that face when you see him in the morning. That's awesome. So does he, so he wrote all the parts for the violins. Does he understand the mechanics of the violin and how that works or was there sort of a learning curve? He has a much better understanding now and I have to hand it to him. There weren't many errors 
you yes. know, but there are certain things on the violin, I'm sure you, you know, that cannot be expected, pardon me, cannot be expected, like a sequence of fifths, for example, which are not based on any open strings and have to be manipulated with your thing, you know, just stuff like that, or a third, for example, like from here to here, we can't play those two notes together. Right. There's no possible way to play those two notes together unless you retune the instrument. So uh, little things like that became clear to him as the the uh, rehearsal period went on. Okay, awesome. Well, it was mainly him teaching us. I mean, let's make that clear. And he did a great job. He is a fabulous teacher. I even brought him an apple on his birthday. <laughs> Here you go, Teach. Happy birthday. Let's keep up the good, you know. And it was just a fabulous experience. That's fantastic. So pivoting away from the Vi thing, you, um, you've you got a lot of videos out there that have, that have gone kind of viral. Um, I guess in a lot of it, some of your solo violin stuff, some of the arrangements, uh, cover tunes that you've done. Um, arrangements of the, uh, with the Michael Jackson thing. Yeah, uh, that was no fault of my own. Uh, I didn't know I was being filmed that night. That was in 2006, I want to say. And I didn't even know really what YouTube was at that point. Like, you know, it was pretty new back then. And, uh, I can't even believe it's been 12 years since then. Oh my God. But, uh. I was just at a, an open mic that night, and I didn't really care much about life. <laughs> you can kind of see it. It's written all over my face, but uh, I went up and just messed around a little bit for, what was it, 10 minutes or so, and yeah. somebody had filmed it, and within that 10 minutes, we have what we've come to know now is, and has been transcribed even, I have it for sale. Uh, this owner of a lonely heart into Michael Jackson's smooth criminal for solo violin. Oh, uh, it again happened as the result of necessity. You so, know. is that something that you had worked out ahead of time, maybe a little bit, and it sort of, or it just happened on stage, or how? Uh, I want to say that the answer is yes. It had to have been worked on at some level prior to that open mic, but I know for a fact that I hadn't performed it on purpose up until that point. I was like, hey, I might as well try this, you know. Right. So. Well, it worked out okay. <laughs> uh, later on, I ended up with a performance that I liked much better, you know, than the original video, which went viral. Um. Mind you, the original video was taken down after it had received over a million views and, um, and then resurfaced through copies and other people doing it. Uh, anyway, it's a lengthy story, but it ended up getting taken down and then it was put back up and now I found a, a different performance of it that I like much better. The sound is better and the execution of everything I had intended to play is much more clear. Right. Well, some nights are magical and some nights are less 
you know, <laughs> some lights are not. Yeah. See one of them and they will gladly sell you a CD. It's a special today only. It's one for 15 or two for 40. Okay. <laughs> You know, we we recently sort of went through a little experience where you know you you got the the Facebook trolls out there that you know they they see anything that's just even just a, a half a step below a hundred percent, and everybody's talking about how great they are and how great you're not, and it's uh, man, I, I had a I had a Facebook post where I said you know Facebook the place where subpar musicians come to criticize the greatest players in the world. I mean, how true is that? How true is that? I just saw a comment under a Steve Vai video bitching him out and telling him how the handle in his Ibanez uh, prototype 
is just absolute bullshit and how he should be ashamed of himself. <laughs> so do you do what I do when you see that? Do you go to that person's profile and see what they've got up? No, I don't care. I, I do it, it. This is the scientist in me. I have to go to their profile because I have a theory. And my, th my theory, and, and I have yet to be proven wrong on this, that the people who will do that either have no content of their own up or they have embarrassing content of their own. Where they think there's something that they're not. Uh-huh. Um, I recently saw a, a guy was just dragging Orianthe through the mud. He wow. saw an Orianthe recording and was just, man, I could mop the floor with this girl. Why, what a precious soul she is. I saw her yeah. last year at NAMM, and she utterly destroyed it. She, yeah. was, she was incredible. When we did the, um, it was a show with, with uh, Joe Satriani and Orianti, and uh, it was our last, my last show, actually, with Steve Vai was in Hollywood at the uh, House of Blues, and that's when I really got to know Orianti and gave her a violin lesson, and she really, really enjoyed it. Oh, wow. You know, she wanted to know all about how to play that violin. Well, she's got the guitar under control. Yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. This guy was just talking about how much better he was in Orianti, and, and somebody said, well, yeah, post some video, bro, if you're that good. And he posted some video, and he was more impressed with himself than he should have been. Uh, so that's pretty much how it goes. And, and what we have to keep in mind as professional violinists, and even further, as professional musicians, if you're a singer... If you, if you do anything that is in the realm of performance arts, you have to remember that in the year 2018, you are performing for the entire world at all times. It isn't just the 50 people in your venue anymore. That's You're true. about to become evaluated and humiliated or celebrated by a lot of people. And it's because of this damned internet. <laughs> so, yeah. See, you're a flip phone guy, right? I am a flip phone guy. But I'm, you know, I'm one of these, uh, maybe I'm like the world's oldest millennial, man. I've always got my smartphone in my hand. And, um, and that's the thing. You stand on stage and like you were saying, sort of busking at Nam, And you look, and it's this cacophonous room. And it's, you know, I, I just woke up and I was up maybe a little later handing last night than I should have been because that's all Andrew Glasser's fault and and, <laughs> and and I look out and I've got eight cell phones pointed at me and I'm thinking gosh I should have warmed up <laughs> exactly and it, it, it's funny you bring that subject up because uh, for the last two days it's taken me two days to warm up sufficiently like I'm now ready as of this interview to start laying tracks and I've been home for two days. Right. It's like, I'm just now getting hot enough to turn the mic on. Right. So that's what playing the violin is. You know, you have to get to know that damn thing on a daily basis. You know, so if 11 a.m. rolls around and you're committed to do something for a dear friend of yours, as I was for Mr. Glasser, the show must go on. You're not, not going to play. Sure. And I might as well launch into one of the most difficult show pieces ever written for the instrument. 
because why not? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to pick this violin that I've never touched before in my life off the wall behind me, okay, for the first time. I'm going to tune it up, and I'm going to launch into the Vinyavsky Scherzo Terrence. With a bass player you haven't seen in a year. Exactly. And as soon as I begin, there are going to be, as you say, 14 cell phones that end up being aimed in my direction. Well, I will say that you served it up. I stand by my assertion that that was good playing. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I wasn't ashamed of the performance, especially when considering that it's an electric, it's made out of carbon fiber. Sure. And I had never played it before. We hadn't warmed up. We hadn't. Ju we had just sh shook hands, and it was time to roll. So it is what it is. And my octaves at 11 a.m., you know, how good are your octaves? At 11 a.m. Probably not as good as that. <laughs> I appreciate your saying so. <laughs> so you have, have got a lot of projects going on. You've got the Depew de Hoyos project, right? Sure. Uh, it was basically the merging of two cultures uh, because we have two completely different candidates here. One is representing the U.S. on the violin with that kind of twisted American rock on a sound. And then that meets the groove and stylings of a flamenco Mexican native. And the combination of that groove meets, you know, what I put on top of it was really uh, compelling to say the least. I really, really enjoyed that work with Miguel. And uh, one of the things that we did first was the uh, recording, which is still my biggest seller. It's called Underground Whispers. And the first track is basically the sound of the new duo at that time. I want to say that was 2007. It was about, uh, it was between tours with Vi. Um, so, the name of the track is Cortijo, C-O-R-T-I-J-O, and that is an original composition by the two of us, uh, and then you'll get to hear what it is that we were able to do as far as that groove goes. Yeah, I, lo I love that. While we listen to Depew De Hoyos, I want to remind you that the sponsor for this episode is Glasser Violins. Alex and I were both involved in the development of the new Glasser Carbon Fiber Acoustic Electric Violins. We have both been blown away by the quality of these instruments, especially at the price. Both four and five string instruments are available. Prices are in the $1,000 range. Honestly, for a gigging musician, you have to have one of these. I can take it outside in the hot sun or humidity and not have to worry about it. I can take it out in the cold and not have to worry about it. It has active electronics all contained in the chin rest, so it has treble and bass control as well as volume. The electronics sound fantastic. I've done some recording with mine as well as playing live, but the instrument itself sounds really good too. I actually did a session with mine not even plugged in, just mic'd. And since they're available in a ton of colors, the AEX series has solid colors you can find on Electric Violin Shop Instagram page with colors ranging from a stunning white to a classic black to a smoking hot red and even a really sweet purple. 
The regular series has a variety of shades of carbon fiber weave, a really hot look. You can get an instrument that not only sounds great, but will get you a ton of compliments on the look too. We've gotten a ton of positive feedbacks on these instruments at EVS. A lot of top level players have one of these in their arsenal. Get more information at glasserbows.com or order one at Electric Violin Shop today. Another thing, too, is, is talking about gear a little bit. You're not a big gearhead when it comes to playing with your violin. You're not dragging in giant pedal boards and all that kind of thing. Uh, no. I would rather make those sounds organically somehow. Yeah, and, and I've heard... I, I'm going to ask you to do some of that a little bit for us now, but I, I just I hear more different sounds coming out of your violin with no effects on it. Than, than pretty much anybody that, that you can listen to. Uh, thanks. I, I, I mean, there are ways to manipulate and play the bridge and just maximize those sounds that you can get through crunching with the bow or chopping or even smacking the instrument if you've got the gumption to do that and destroy your wooden instrument. Sure. But... Uh, yeah, you know, all and the, uh, the delay is easy enough to achieve, you know. So just having some sense of dynamic, mm -hmm. and then voila, you've got a, a delay, you know. Yeah, show us maybe uh, how you achieve like a distorted sound or sort of that growl and that grab on on the violin. So I would simply get the hairs of the bow to an uncomfortable spot on the string. And we all know where that is. It's right up against the bridge. Oh, you do the... Oh, you haven't plugged anything in, and you've still got a bit of a an electric sound there. Sure. You know? Oh, that's just the acoustic fiddle we're hearing. And then with the chopping, you know, there's a lot of guys out there doing Daryl Anger, and some of those guys are doing a lot of really cool chopping stuff, but um, what was sort of the evolution of that? Do you remember when all that was sort of getting started? I don't. I don't, actually. Uh, I thought it was my own. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was my own. So up until 2005 or so, I don't know who we're going to find prior to that. Are we going to find people? Yeah, I'm trying to remember who all has done um, some of that chopping stuff. You know, Daryl Anger, of course, is well known for it. Um, yes. Casey yeah. Dreesen has done some. I grew up on Daryl. One of the records I grew up listening to was Daryl Anger's uh, work with Dave Grisman, the dog music, D-A-W-G. And we get to hear some of that from Daryl on there, but it's mostly linear playing, you know, uh, horizontal 
you know, melodic shapes, melodic lines, and I don't hear much in the way of percussion from him on those two records. Yeah, I'm not a historian. I, I couldn't tell you when those when those techniques first uh, appeared on tape or when they got out to the public. But yeah, well, the concept is easy enough. You know, we're just simply trying to simulate beats two and four as they might be heard through a snare drum. So. That's, and I've, I've recently tried to really up my, my chopping chops, so right. to speak. And well, it's like uh, it's not super useful in a six-piece band, like, you know, like I'm doing. But it's, you know, you don't always play in a six-piece band. And sometimes you just, you sit around the house and think, well, I need to write something today that I haven't done before. And it's, there you go. let's come up with something today and see what happens. Yeah. Or maybe they'll shut up for 40 seconds and let you step up to the edge of the stage and say what you want to say. It's, you know, and that's the thing when your target audience is, is millennials, 40 seconds is a long time for them. Agreed. Agreed. The average attention span, and I see this through the statistics on the videos that uh, are on my pages is six seconds. Yeah. Six. You get six seconds to either hold, hold the audience or not. That's not much time. That's maybe enough time to flash your website. Right. It's not enough time to hook an audience. But then again, maybe you learned some of this um, busking, right? You got people walking by that are, that are potentially going to buy your lunch. Street smarts, man. You don't and have a long time to hook these people. And buy your record. You know, if you have product to sell and you're on the street trying to make a living, you can do it. And you can do a lot better than just making a living, you know. Uh, and, and when I left the city of Philadelphia, I did so well that they changed the rules. You cannot busk in the subway anymore without a permit. It was funny, Matt, because the, the boss of SEPTA, okay, the entire transit system, would walk by my post every morning <laughs> and see the big mountain of green cash in my fiddle case and just shake his head in disgust as he kept walking <laughs> to his nine-to-five job, bless his heart. Mad, because you'd already made more money that day than he had, probably. Maybe. I, tr I treated it like a job. I was there promptly at 6 a.m. And from 6.30 a.m. until about 9.30 at least in the city of Philadelphia, that's when you're going to do really well. You know, if you're any good, you're going to hold audiences and you're going to get a lot of money. You're going to get a lot of tips. They're going to buy a lot of CDs. So when you are, you're continually writing and, and performing new stuff. Um, and you recently just did a, uh, what was the latest cover you did? I'm trying to remember. It's got the, the light show going. It's in this room that you're in right now. We've got the Built the City, we've got the uh, Take on Me by AHA, which did really well. That got 40,000 views overnight, literally. Uh, I was really impressed with that. I didn't realize that that little arrangement might do so well. Um, uh, did Separate Ways. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yep, that's the one I'm thinking of. 
that one will be on the next album. So the, I'm finishing up the album right now. I'm a little bit behind because I have to do it all. Right. And that includes raising the money, and that includes putting together the pieces to make for a, 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 a beneficial video shoot. Uh, it's just a lot of stuff to manage. You know, I'm a plate spinner, sure. as my manager calls it. She says I'm a professional plate spinner. So uh, there's a lot of truth to that. What is your what is your process on on saying okay I, I'm going to pick this tune and and here's how I'm going to try to approach this and attack this? I just have to like it. You know, any of those tunes from your past which move you or are attached to it, wonderful memories from your childhood perhaps. You know, those are the tunes that you're automatically going to gravitate to if you're going to do a cover at all. But I believe that with this new chapter in life, uh, I'll be focused a lot more in the near future on original stuff. Fantastic. We know that the covers are always going to be there. Sure. I may as well just get real. Yeah, so what uh, do you want to give people a heads up on, on maybe what kind of original stuff is, is, in, the, is in the cooker? Um, well, I will say this is I'm about to pull out my wood violin, the five string, and plug that bitch in, finally. Awesome. And, and do some new stuff uh, with that. And, and, you know, what happens is the result of that, I've had this thing in my brain for that very purpose uh, going on for uh, a few years now. Long enough to trick Mark into sending me a Viper <laughs> to a studio, <laughs> studio in Philadelphia where I thought I was going to get around to it, and then it didn't happen. And then I ended up building my own studio, so now everything changed, sure. uh, including my knowledge of how to use the studio. You know, right. Pro Tools is no joke. Well, learning that has its own learning curve built in. Yeah, it's so like learning a language. It is. But it's so powerful that, that um, it really allows you to open a lot of creative doors that, that you couldn't without it. It does, yeah. It's like uh, anything you encounter while using that software for recording music can be answered. Anything you can think of can be answered. It, it gets down to the point where you have to wonder if it might be able to wash your dishes, too. That'd be nice. But hey, man, thank you for doing this interview. I'm, uh, I'm really excited about how this is going to turn out, and we'll, we'll get this uh, edited down and out to the people real soon. Just tell people before you go um, all your contact information, your website, Facebook, all that stuff. Sure, uh, absolutely. You know, we have the, uh, the website, of course, is alexdepew.com. So that's, as you might expect it to be spelled, my last name is D-E, capital P-U-E. Uh, those are a lot of similar letters sounding. Yeah. So anyway, maybe you can spell it out somewhere for them. Uh, also, uh, of course, Facebook is my main, like that's where you will know that I'm alive. Okay. So the fan page in particular is where I like to drive people because, well, it's no small accomplishment to acquire that little check mark that goes next to your name on Facebook. For sure. And I'm I'm proud of that. So I like 
to have people travel there. Uh, also, my personal page on Facebook. I believe we're about to get hooked into Instagram, but I don't know a whole lot about that. With my flip phone, I'm yeah. not really. I'm not willing to figure it out. So. <laughs> but you got people for that. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Awesome. So it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. Yeah, likewise, and we'll uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Rockstar Violinist. Please check out Alex on iTunes, Reverb.com, and his social media accounts. Thanks to Glasser Violins for their support. And as always, give us a call at Electric Violin Shop for all your electric bowed strain needs. We'll see you next time.